what I'm talking about. Okay, let's do this. Let's turn to Acts 10, and then Matthew 15. We're going to go back there as well, uh, kind of in the middle. <clears throat> um, does someone want to recap very shortly the end of Acts 9? It's been a couple of weeks since we had Mother's Day service. Which, by the way, everyone that was involved with uh, Mother's Day service, y'all, it was great. Thank y'all so much. You uh, meant the world to us, so thanks. Um, anyone, though? Acts 9? Anyone? I'll wait. I have, I have no, I do not mind. <laughs> not at all. It involved a funny name. I'll go with you on that. Just, or you could just look it up. Dorcas. Yep. Maybe that's not a funny name. It could be very beautiful in its time. I think that's the awesome part for me, too. Like, interesting choice there from a, a very nice-sounding name that rolled off the tongue well to Dorcas. You can see it. Sure. <laughs> you don't have to read it. You can just recap it in your own words. Yeah, just recap. But now you have to do it. You started. <laughs> you weren't. That's right. That's unfair. Someone help. Y'all are so quiet today. This is confusing. Brian. You weren't here either. Hang it. <laughs> that's true. All right. Yeah, the other crew. The other church stayed home today. And this one came. It's fine. What was the question? Just recap the end of chapter 9. Yeah, just read it. Just someone. Please help me. Sure. Yes. You don't have to ask. Just go ahead. Sure. Brilliant, brilliant, thanks. And then where was he staying at the end? Simon the Tanner's house? Yeah, stay with Simon the Tanner. So, but we compared that and we said, the interesting thing here is this last part of chapter 9, it seems the writer is trying to show us that the disciples, these apostles now, are doing the same things as who? As Jesus, right? We have a very similar story with the, you know, Tabitha, Dorcas is raised from the dead, right? Peter's up, sends everyone out. He prays with her, says, Tabitha, arise. And we talked about how that's a very similar story to what? Jesus having people come saying, Jairus' daughter, right, is sick. Go to her. He doesn't even, he can't, right? 
Because the crowd, do you remember what happens during the crowd? We have this whole story that happens that interrupts it. Yeah, this, this lady that's been bleeding for years and years touches his clothes, and then he's like, my power is gone. Who touched me? Everyone's like, come on, man. Everyone's touching you. It's a crowd. We can't even walk. You're trying to go heal this girl that's about to die, and we can't even get there. What are you talking about? And he meets her. It's this beautiful kind of exchange they have and everything else. Then he gets to Jairus' daughter's house. The widows who are like, or not the widows, the mourners who are paid professionally to be there, right? He says, she's not dead. Stop mourning. She's not dead. Only asleep. And they laugh, like break character and laugh, which is completely ridiculous in my head. I'm like, what, what kind of professional people are you to do that? That's awful. That's awful. So anyway, and he goes upstairs. She's laying there dead, goes upstairs, prays, says, my daughter or sweetheart, kind of this like, this, this tender word for my child, my daughter child, and she gets up, right? So again, in Acts, we're finding that, that the apostles, these new followers of the way, these um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, are seen as Jesus' representation to the world, right, by Jesus, saying to Saul, it's me you're persecuting. He's like, who? Who is this? He says, it's me, Jesus. Saul had nothing to do with actually killing Jesus. He's killing the followers of Jesus. Jesus telling him, though, no, it is me you are persecuting by jailing them, by throwing them in prison, by torturing them, by killing them, by murdering them, by holding the coats for the ones that killed Stephen. You are persecuting myself, right? My presence in the world. And then we have story after story about how the apostles and these new believers are doing the same things as Jesus. And this is important because as they're doing that, now we come to this very, this, this passage is one of my favorite in Acts, just straight away, because of how it changes everything about the way the kingdom is seen by the rest of the world. It changes the way it's presented to the world. It changes the way the apostles see other people. It, it totally changes the narrative and the entire rest of Acts, the entire rest of the New Testament, our, our Christian history changes with this next story. But it's, an, it's crucial again for us to remember that the way it is seen by the Holy Spirit, by the writers here, by Luke, more than likely the writer, as it's seen, the apostles, these early followers, are Jesus' representation to the world. Okay? We, we know that. said like 7,000 times and it's getting annoying. So let's get into it and let's read uh, chapter 10. <clears throat> I'm going to read kind of a long, I'm going to read all of it and then I'm going to go back. Okay? This is what it says. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with another one, Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two servants, a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having relayed everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, let's, actually, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let's pause and talk about this, okay? So, who is this about so far? Cornelius, who is a what? A centurion. Where most centurions um, describe a centurion to me. Do we know about them? 
How many people were they in charge of, first of all? A hundred. The whole idea of centurion. Hey, yo. So, we all know Greek. So, centurion is in charge of a hundred soldiers. Um, so that's a decent number of them. Uh, it's in between, though, something that would possibly be a, a general or an other, upper, I don't know the layers of Roman armies at this point. But he's an in-between, it seems. But has worked hard and is trusted enough to be entrusted with a hundred people. Okay? And what about this one, this Cornelius? What, is it, what does the Bible choose to say about him? How is he described? Right, he's devout. Okay, he fears God. What, what does, okay, here's an interesting one for me. What does scripture, how does scripture describe devout in this, in this story? What is devout to Luke here? He gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God. Interesting. He was constantly in prayer and he gave to the poor. That's, that's how he was, or at least... The, the main showy reason he was devout, right? What, um, what religion was he? Doesn't say, right? It's very important that it doesn't say, also. It's not Jewish, because he's a centurion. It doesn't say he's a proselyte, right? He's just a great guy who prays continually to God and gives to the poor. I mean, that seems, that seems his only description here. And he's in charge of 100 people. He must be, you know, good enough with them. He's successful enough as a soldier, right? That's, that's his move right now. And this man is going to get to be a part of this very, very interesting exchange. Because what happens to him right after? Or not right after. Right after he's introduced to us. An, an angel comes to him. Right? How many times does that happen in Scripture? Is it pretty common? Angels coming to people and explaining? No. Very rare, right? And in typical fashion, right, when he sees the angel, he's very afraid. <laughs> the centurion, this warrior, is afraid. And the angel says, what to him? Your alms, your prayers, God hears them. Number one, how beautiful is that to hear? You're, you're this foreigner who's worshiping a God you may know, may not. Maybe, maybe you call this God the Jewish God. Maybe you know all about that and you're just not a proselyte. Maybe you're still just sticking with your Gentileness. Or, or maybe he doesn't know the, the name of Yahweh. He doesn't know that this is a God that Jesus was sent from. Maybe he doesn't know that. It doesn't seem like he does with the rest of the story a chapter later. But he's, he's devout. He's, he doesn't know everything that he should know. But his prayers and his sacrifice to the poor, God is pleased with. And this is important for us again to note. He does not know everything he is supposed to know. But he knows to do what is good. And he knows to be prayerful and consider those things. And God is pleased with him. Right? God's pleased, sends an angel, says, here's what you need to do. There's this guy way over here named Simon. They call him Peter. He's staying at another Simon's house. Don't get confused. He's a tanner, <laughs> which I love. 
Another Simon is there too, but he's not the one. Don't bring him. He just tans leather and stuff. He's, he's cool, very generous host, but he doesn't have to come to your house. So he said, bring him to you. Bring him here. I have something to say to you, right? Again, this is crazy and beautiful. So right when the angel leaves, what does he do? He says, okay, let's do this. He gets his people, people in his house, his servants, a devout, another devout soldier, and says, you have to find this guy. I just had this vision dream thing, and it scared me. I need you to go get this guy, Simon Peter, not Simon the Tamer, Tamer, him neither, but go get him, bring him to us. It's going to do us good. Go get him, right? And so then it continues. The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up um, on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He was hungry and wanted something to eat. So when is the sixth hour, by the way? The sixth hour in like a Jewish day. It's noon. Yeah, it's like lunchtime. Do what? Oh, it tells you noon. You could have been smart enough to know that. We would trust you. (laughs) We would totally trust you would know when when that is. So it's noonish, right? It's about the sixth hour. So he goes up, he's hungry, and so he just goes to the roof to wait. He says he was hungry and wanted something to eat, but as they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, bringing it down, or being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, in true Peter fashion, exactly. That is exactly what Peter said. No, Lord. Which, again, Peter's got to be the only person that says no, Lord, so many times, just out loud, ready to be recorded. Like, no, Lord. How could I? Dude, I just told you. Just do what I ask you to do. That's what I feel like at my house with my sons. I'm like, just please, just do it for the love especially this morning. So, (laughs) rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might mean, behold, men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry, inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask whether Peter, Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Now, this is, again, a very interesting vision in a trance. Okay? So he's up there hungry, which I like that this happens when he's hungry, because I would, if I fell asleep hungry, I might also dream about a pizza or something. So he's up, he's up on the roof, and he falls into a trance, and this thing like a sheet comes down from heaven, right? And all these animals are on it. And the Lord says to him, he hears this voice that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You're hungry, have whatever you would like. Go, kill and eat these things. These are for you to eat them. Peter says, how can I do that? I have not ever since my birth eaten something unclean, right? Common or unclean. Now, do we, does anyone, okay, you, you don't have to. I, I've looked in Leviticus this week about things that were unclean, and the list is overly specific, okay? So, 
For instance, um, there's a portion in Leviticus that is like birds of the air. And it says, let me tell you the birds of the air you should not eat. And let me tell you the ones you can eat. It even goes to like saying, don't eat the small owl. Also, don't eat the barn owl. Also that owl. Don't eat any of those three. They're unclean for some reason, right? And it says, don't eat the eagle or the buzzard or the bearded buzzard or this. But, and it goes in this list, right? Animals that walk on the ground. If they chew cud and have cloved feet, you can eat them. Except for, and it goes into this list. So to not eat certain things for Peter would not be hard. It would be his culture. But for anyone else to try to, to do that would be very difficult. It needs to be something ingrained in your childhood, in your culture, in the way you do things. It's, it's like saying, it's like, yeah, it, I'm trying not to make a, a light of it too bad, but like, it'd be like one of us <clears throat> having this vision and all these bugs and spiders and crickets and things, all the things that like live in holes in the ground and everything on a sheet and, and hearing a voice saying, go and eat all of those. It'd be like, that sounds awful. I don't want any of those. I've never eaten a bug, more than likely, in my life. I don't want them, right? That's, we understand we don't eat bugs. They understand not to eat unclean things. So to Peter, this is very perplexing. And it really is. The vision, this voice, everything happens three times. So it's repeated, and he's still perplexed when he wakes up. He's super confused by this. Why in the world would I be needing to eat something? Why did God give me a vision to eat things that I know I have read and I have memorized as a boy a passage that told me what not to eat? Why am I being told this? And the confusion for us, we're like, Peter, just do what God says. But you would doubt God's voice if God tells you to do something that you could read in Scripture for yourself. Do not eat this, 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 this. Do not eat the pig. Do not eat the eagle. Do not eat the camel. Do not eat these kind of bugs, but you can eat locusts. Do not eat this. So this is legitimately confusing. Legitimately. This, this would be, like it says, perplexing, in fact, to have this vision. As he wakes up from this, and as he's trying to figure out what is going on, who arrives? Right. These, the, the people sent by... Um, Cornelius, okay? And it goes through, and it says, And while Peter was respond- pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So again, they're just saying, we just want you to come there. We trust you have something to tell us. Please come over to our house. <laughs> right? This is so great. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down to his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted up, saying, Stand up, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is. This is important. You know 
how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. For when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? Okay, this is crazily important. Okay, in so many ways. Number one, let's do the obvious because we talked about it at the very beginning of the service. Again, this sounds so much like the life of Jesus, right? What was this great accusation that the Pharisees would have against Jesus after he would be at a party, for instance? All you do, Jesus, is hang out with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners, right? Wasn't that this huge line they kept feeding at him? It's like their talking point or something. It's like, well, we are in crowds. That's going to be our first talking point. We're going to accuse him of always being around the people that steal from us, that make us unclean, and that ruin our culture, right? They're going to accuse him of that. So they start doing that. And then what do they say? They say, also, you eat and drink too much when you're at those parties. Jesus is like, I was hungry and thirsty. (laughs) It was really fun, you know? No, actually, he says, interesting you say that, My cousin came before me. He didn't go to those parties. Did not eat or drink. In fact, he lived this monastic life that you all supposedly celebrate. He lived in the wilderness, praying all day and night. He only wore camel's hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey, things he could find. And you call him possessed by a demon? And then I do the opposite of that, and you say, I'm a drunkard and a glutton. It sounds like you're the problem, honestly. Sounds like we wouldn't be able to get it right. It sounds like righteousness wouldn't appeal to you no matter what it looked like, personally. So anyway, that was beside the point. So anyway, it sounds like Jesus again, okay? Peter going to the house, even stating as he got there, which I think is interesting, you know it's unlawful for me to be here, but alas, I'm here. <laughs> Probably said it nicer, but you know what I mean. It's, it's that kind of presentation, So, I do want us to talk briefly, though, about the unlawfulness of him being there. Because that, this is important. And I want us to go to Matthew 15 now. This is why we were holding our place at Matthew 15, or why it's going to be on the board, or whatever else. But I want us to go to Matthew 15. We'll start in in just chapter, or verse 1. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus... From Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. Now that sounds ridiculous to us, right? Especially if you have a child that never remembers to wash their hands anytime ever, right? They don't ever want to wash their hands before they eat. Half the time on any job site I've ever worked at, I've not seen a single person wash their hands before they eat. So it just sounds silly to us to be like, Why are they so worried about cleanliness? It's more than that. It is it is It is a beautiful and wonderful law because as they would wash before they would eat, they would, yes, be cleaning themselves, which was revolutionary in their time, but they also were washing to remember something spiritually. So the Pharisees' washing didn't start as like this crazy, you know, legalistic thing. It's a beautiful thing. You would would wash your hands once and remember a certain prayer, and you would remember a certain way God has cleaned your food, or you, or presented your food to you. Then you would do a different wash at this party, and you would all do it together. So 
I would do, I would start, then someone else would, and it would go around, and sometimes they would have it as the washing would be brought to you. Sometimes you would do it upon entering a room. There was all these different ways to wash, and it was beautiful. It was good. And it was completely wonderful and well-intentioned and great. Right? But the disciples aren't doing it here. They're just eating. They're eating with people, and Jesus is eating with people, and the Pharisees say, hey, what's going on here? You're breaking the traditions of our elders. And again, they're not just saying the elders. They're saying, you are breaking the traditions that make you you. Okay? We, we have a hard time with that because we're American. We don't have, you know, we don't celebrate, or actually, I shouldn't even say that. Of course, we have traditions that make us us as Americans. But here, the culture of the spiritual washing would be like a part of them. It would, it would be so dear to their character that it would identify them. Okay? So as they're saying you're rejecting the elders, they're saying you're rejecting your Judaism. You're rejecting the things that make us us. You're rejecting this beauty about our culture. You're coming and you're proclaiming you love the God of us, but yet you're neglecting everything that this God gave to us that makes us us. Is this kind of accusation, right? And so he answers them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Like, excuse me? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained for me is now given to God. Right? This idea of, no, no, I know I should be loving you. I should be caring for you, but I'm caring for God instead. I'm giving my money and my time. And it's not really to God. It's a quote fingers to God. It's like this idea of, them furthering themselves and their career at the expense of their parents as Pharisees. He's saying this to them, is, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you've gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, with their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to them and he said, Hear and understand. Is not what goes into the mouth, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know? <laughs> I love this too. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you just said? <laughs> He's like, Oh my goodness, no. I had no idea. I didn't know that they want to destroy me. You know, <laughs> like, yes, I'm fully aware of their offense. And he says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And the blind lead the blind. Both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, please explain the, quote to, the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come your evil thoughts, your murder, your adultery your sexual morality, your theft, your false witness, your slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands defiles no one. So he's explaining, again, this reason for law and the heart of law. And he's, he's saying what has become it and what the law has become is dirty and wrong and worthless and hypocritical. He said, what I intended, what was intended by this law has been maimed so long that no one understands the law anymore. 
No one understands that washing your hands was to remember God's gift of food and God's gift of water to you and the beauty of your sins being washed. No one understands that now. Now they just judge you by how well you wash or how clean your water is or if you have time to have that or if you have a servant, if you're wealthy enough to have a servant that can help you wash. That is what it's judged by now. And he said, no, they're hypocrites, blind guides. He said, the reason for the washing was to remember something else. He said, the the problem is we're so concerned by the outward, by how you wash before you eat. He goes, that food can no more defile you than anything else. He said, what defiles you is what's coming out of your heart and out of your mouth. He said, what they just spewed at us in public is what defiles them. They are blind guides. And And in the same vein, we have Peter saying, no, I can't eat these things. And we translate it further. We have a Jewish culture that instead of saying what Abraham asked of them, or what God asked of Abraham, bless the nations of the world through my blessing to you, right? Do we remember that? God comes to Abraham and he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that... Every other nation will be blessed through you. If you want to bless someone, they'll be blessed. If you, in fact, curse them, they they will be cursed. So bless. Give to them. Let them be be made better because of your presence. Let them be made better because of your company. And, And somehow, between there and now, we have this idea that Peter said, it is unlawful for me to go to your home. It's unlawful for me to have company with you because they were in fact unclean there are also rules in Leviticus if someone does in fact touch a dead pig or if they touch the carcass to move it out they are unclean for a certain amount of time they must wash a certain way no one is to come over to their home and they are to take care of themselves and take care of their issue of cleanliness and then have people back over well the centurion they eat whatever they want every meal and so basically the Jewish culture said you are always unclean and instead of this beautiful idea of cleanliness and purity basically it had been changed into I don't want to associate with you you are out and I am in it changed somehow to you are always unclean and thus unworthy of my company it changed to because you don't believe the same as me because you are different from me because you eat a certain thing I will have nothing to do with you. You will not receive blessing from me. You will not be blessed with my company, with my presence, with my time. Yeah, you can give alms to us. I can maybe take your unclean money, but there will be nothing from us to you because you are unclean and you are different and you are a Gentile and you are not worthy. You are out and we are in. We are family, you are stranger. This was the way. And and they didn't understand that it wasn't what the centurion ate that made him clean. It was what he did through his heart. It was was this centurion's heart that made him devout, wasn't it? His prayers that he constantly offered. His alms that he gave to the poor. He was clean. An angel came there. If an angel could be at his house, it's clean enough, right? Ish. I would imagine. (laughs) He seems to be fine. And so for Peter to not understand that, and for Peter, this was a groundbreaking thing that he even needed to state when he went to the house. 
for him to say, look, I know this is crazy, is such a sad thing. For, for Peter to go and say, you know it's against the law for me to be here. And again, sounds so much like Jesus. That Jesus wasn't supposed to touch lepers or he would be unclean for weeks. That he wasn't supposed to be touched by someone, by a woman who was bleeding. Or he would also have to go through ceremonial washing. But he said, no, it's not the people I touch that make me unclean. It's the people I don't. It's that I might not touch them. It's, it's that I might not say, yes, I'm willing, you are clean to the leper that met me right after this wonderful sermon on the mount that I gave to you. That's what's going to make me unclean. And so we have this shift beginning that is so exciting and wonderful that Peter says, maybe this isn't just for the Jews. Maybe this isn't just for the proselyte that had to go through circumcision and go through ceremonies and go through sacrifices and renounce their family and renounce their culture and renounce these things so they might get to the brink of the temple. Maybe they don't have to do that first. Maybe this centurion is just clean by what he does. And maybe this centurion might be clean because I can bring it here. Maybe... He's righteous because God is with him too. Maybe this gospel is as far-reaching as we dreamed it would be kind of idea. And it, it starts here. And it's this beautiful change that starts to happen. And it goes slowly and it goes poorly, by the way. A few chapters later, Paul basically screams at people. And he says, oh, you're making... You're saying they have to be circumcised? Why don't you be circumcised all the way? Right? Because you're telling them they have to be circumcised before they can come into the kingdom of heaven that's at hand? I'll tell you what you should do. (laughs) He's angry. Because this is being argued over and destroyed. This beautiful kingdom of heaven for everyone, kingdom of heaven for Cornelius, is going to get ruined so quickly. We know it's ruined. We see it need to look similar to me right you have to not say curse words for me to come to your home you know you have to be documented to work with me you have to you have to look and sound like me you need to understand the gospel as I was taught it kids in Indonesia you need to know it like I know it You also need to dress a certain way and go to the school that I tell you to get it as well, right? We've seen it distorted. We've seen it ruin the face of the kingdom of heaven. We do it too. It's easy for us to invite people to our home that look just like us, that are our same age, have the same number of kids, that don't have, you know, too many outward problems. They hide them well enough. Instead of just saying, maybe I'm bringing the blessing to everyone. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about this again next week. And we're going to continue further on it. But I just want us this week, I, I want us to examine ourselves well. And I want us to examine ourselves well. I'm not saying you're going to get into a trance before you eat lunch. And that God's going to be like, you should go eat all the food you want. Not, not like that. Not like that. You may. That would be awesome. You should tell us about it, I guess. But... 
I want us to think through this idea of are we the kind that would still have to say, look, I know it's crazy, but I'm here to have community with you. Look, I know it. This may be wild, but the kingdom of heaven is for you as well. You know, even though you were as my favorite, Dallas Willard, he goes through this rant in, in Divine Conspiracy, and he's like, you know, it's for the diseased, the pregnant too many times, or the pregnant at the wrong times. It's for the down and out. It's for the depressed. It's for the one with crippling anxiety. It's for the one that grew up poor and will stay poor. It's for the one that self-sabotages. It's for the one that self-harms. It's this, all these people. The gospel is available to all and to all who is available to now. It is. It's available. Peter is trying to understand it right now. And I'm sad that we still, thousands of years later, are trying to understand that. We're trying to grasp it with our hands. That it might really be available for all people. Just maybe. And so let's pray on that. I don't even have much direction for you other than that. But let's, let's do that together. So let's stand. Um... Well, let's just do this. Let's go right into communion. I think that's important. So the way we do communion here is we're going to do a liturgy of response. Uh, I'm going to say the, the words after leader. You'll say congregation back to me. And then we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. And then when you feel like the time is right, you can go with your family, by yourself, with someone just next to you, whatever. We'd ask you to go take the bread, dip it in the cup, enjoy communion, and then worship however you see fit through the day. But the, the beauty again of today is as we are taking communion, we are saying, Jesus, ours is with you. When you say, the whole world will be blessed through you, we are saying, the world will be blessed through me. We are saying, the gospel is available to all, and to all it is available by dipping it into the cup. No matter the background, no matter the issue, no matter the language, no matter the whatever, we take it and we dip it into the cup together. All of us. That's what's beautiful about the life of Jesus that is offered to us. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Father, through your goodness we have this bread and cup. May we know your presence in our sharing. May one in Christ and one of each other, we offer ourselves back to you, living out of grace. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but to deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.